Some of you have come here today overflowing with the joy of living. Life is good. There's lots to be thankful for. Your heart's in a good place today. Others of you have come here with quite heavy hearts. You're sad, grieving, hurting, overwhelmed, anxious, you name it. And still others of us are somewhere in between. Life is full of joy and sorrow, and we feel them both today. No matter where you describe yourself right now, I want to give us all reasons to rejoice today. Though if you're sorrowful, I won't just be telling you to, don't worry, be happy. I want to encourage you to rejoice in spite of the heaviness, which may last a while yet. Because we are in the midst of dark days in a dark world, it's true. And yet, great truths also shine like a path for our feet, even now. Think of the people who originally heard the prophet Zephaniah's message. You can actually open your Bibles up there now to Zephaniah chapter 3. But the people who heard this, their days were dark. They soon would get much darker as they or their children would be conquered and dragged off into exile. So their short-term outlook was brutal, filled with the judgment of God. Yet, like we saw last week, there was hope for the people of God. The Lord was at work. He, was, he uses his judgment to, to purify, to, to unify, to restore his humble people. He will remove our pride and our shame, transforming and, and satisfying us for good. Listen to these beautiful promises once more. We read this last week in verses 11 to 13. It says, on that day, so that this is the day of the Lord, on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. And in response to all this, the final passage of Zephaniah calls us to rejoice, and not just a little bit. He calls for unrestrained celebration. Look at verse 14. It says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So he tells his people to rejoice in four different ways. To sing aloud, shout, rejoice, and exult. He might as well be saying, get excited. Get hyped. Get psyched. Now, either Zephaniah is picturing himself on the day of the Lord when all this would go down, or he's just confidently anticipating that day, excitedly awaiting it and all that it would bring. 
But either way, these words, like I just said, they were spoken, they were written down for people who were about to be exiled. So their future ecstasy was meant to incite a present joy, despite their circumstances. Where God was leading things could completely change their outlook on life now. There was grace beyond and greater than their gloom or devastation. And thus, joy wasn't only for future generations. It was for them too, right then. But there's a sense in which this passage applies even more to us on the other side of Christ. Because I think it was clear that Zephaniah was seeing beyond the Israelites' immediate future. He was foreseeing blessings for God's people, some of which only came true with Jesus. Which tells us now to rejoice in the blessings that Christ has inaugurated for us now. And he was foreseeing the final day when God brings all people, judges them before his throne, which tells us to rejoice in what will take place at Christ's return on the day of Jesus Christ. So the focus for us is both present and future tense. God is already doing this and he will do this. And the first thing I believe we're told in our magnificent verses for today is to rejoice, for the Lord takes away all our reasons to fear. We should rejoice, for the Lord is taking away all of our reasons to fear. And this flows right out of that peaceful scene in verse 13 of of sheep eating and resting in safety, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. We humans sing to express a whole gamut of emotions. But joy is one of the most common, right? It's why the phrase, burst into song, exists in the English language. It's why songs are played or sung at sporting events to hype up the crowd. It's why my toddler is obsessed with Baby Shark. (laughs) The song makes him happy. It's why we sing at concerts and holidays and weddings, celebrations. We're, We're told here to sing, and specifically to sing aloud. So openly, audibly, publicly. God's people are also told to shout, to to raise our voices and shout in triumph, like like an army celebrating a victory, or a crowd cheering, yeah! We're told to rejoice, to, to be intentionally glad, and to exult with all our hearts, to celebrate with gusto. And all this because, as of the day of the Lord, we'll never be afraid again. And look at verse 15, it repeats it. The Lord has taken away 
the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel is in your midst. The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. What are you afraid of today? Perhaps, are you afraid of the displeasure of the Lord? Do you picture God like he's a a disapproving parent frowning down on you from on high? You've been very naughty. You're going to pay for it. Or do you see him like a traffic cop who's just waiting to catch you in the act of sinning? Or do you imagine him like a a stone-faced judge banging a gavel and pronouncing guilty? While those images might have small fragments of truth in them, they are not who God most truly is. He is a father, but a loving one. He is an authority, but he isn't trying to to pounce on us. And he is a judge, but his deepest desire for us is to pronounce us not guilty. And in fact, he's already done this, so we need not fear we can rejoice. If we, are, if we are following Christ, if we're in him, we can rejoice because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. And not only would he restore his people of Israel from exile one day, he would also come to earth in Jesus and take all our judgment on himself. So his judgments were indeed poised against us, but they are no longer. He had mercy. And because of this, we don't need to be afraid of the Lord anymore. We also no longer need to fear other people or opponents who may want to harm us. It says he's cleared away your enemies. Now, since most of you have never served in the military in wartime before, you could just maybe picture a show or a movie where you've, where you've seen military action and you, you see an underdog, outmatched group of soldiers ready for battle, standing there on the lines. And even as they're resolved to do their duty, you can see the fear in their eyes. They know that some of them, maybe all of them, are not making it home alive. But then imagine if the other side's armies were all of a sudden and supernaturally wiped out. What joy or peace would they feel? Like, it happened before for the Israelites. Their enemies drowned in the Red Sea, crushed by the walls of Jericho, decimated by an angel during the night. So Zephaniah's people could actually imagine this. They could picture vividly God clearing away their enemies again. And many of us may never experience a battlefield like that. And yet, we fight a spiritual war every day. We have a great enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy in the devil and his minions. 
We also have an escalating amount of people who are hostile or hateful towards our faith. And the Bible says that the final enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. We have these enemies against us. But the Lord's promise is to clear away all the enemies of his people. His victory over them was won at the cross and the empty grave. But one day, we won't even see our enemies anymore. They'll be cleared away. We'll have nothing to fear from Satan, other people, or even death anymore. Now, is that not reason to perk up a little bit? Maybe smile a bit more? Because we're fighting an already won war. Perhaps the, the greatest reason we won't need to fear anymore is that God will be near. It says here in verse 15, The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And we'll come back to this in a bit. I think it deserves its own point. But notice the end of verse 15. Because the Lord would be in their midst, you shall never again fear evil. Last week we imagined a world with no pride and no lies. Now imagine a world with no fear at all, no anxiety. You shall never again fear evil. Now, the word for evil there simply refers to any harm or disaster, any kind of disaster. So think of what this will mean. You won't have to fear disease, aging, or death anymore. You won't have to be anxious about your kids and their safety or their health or, or their spirituality you won't have to, to fear pressures or, or persecution from a mob, online or otherwise. You won't need to be worried about wars, unrest, pandemics, isolation, economic downturn, financial ruin, job loss, climate change, famine, tornadoes, fires, or floods. And that's just the natural outcome of the Lord setting up as king in our midst. Leading up to that day, things may indeed get progressively darker and scarier. So I'm guessing that we may approach that day fairly beat up, shaken up. But the Lord himself will stoop and put his arm around us to comfort us and encourage us. Zephaniah keeps calling his people the daughter of Jerusalem or Zion. So, so picture, take that picture, like God, picture God's people like a little girl on the ground, whimpering, shuddering. And then, verse 16 says, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. It's like, don't be afraid. Don't despair. Cheer up. You may feel weak or powerless or, or worthless now, but stand up and I'll help you be strong. 
says, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. And that alludes to how fear tends to paralyze us. Right? When we get overwhelmed by our circumstances, we can become unable to function. We clench our fists and worry or fall limp in despair. God says, stop this. Tells us people to, to stay active and bold and confident. In other words, salvation should not make us complacent. It should stir us up to, to fearless love. And we see similar encouragement for Christians who are disciplined by the Lord in Hebrews 12, where it says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. It's like God correcting us and training us shouldn't paralyze us, but it should rather catalyze us, make us stronger. Now, some of the, the biggest cultural angst in our days comes from who's running the show, right? Think of all the anxiety or anger surrounding recent elections down south, or we're not immune here. So many people openly despise who's running our country. In some places in the world, like Eastern Europe today, the leaders are actually matters of life or death. It was the same in ancient Israel and Judah. If you remember Zephaniah's historical context, thanks to the, the, the violent ups and downs of Manasseh and Amon and Josiah, the people were rapidly losing faith in the monarchy in Israel, in their kings. They're losing faith in them. In the years following Josiah, if you like they were um, they hit a new low as the kings of his sons and grandsons just cycled through one after the other, moral decline, destabilizing the whole nation, leading directly to their devastation from Babylon. The whole monarchy was about to collapse and disappear, really for good. So, how powerful would it have been to hear that there was another king among them? who never changed, who was always stable, and who ruled in righteousness and justice. Because that's what he says here. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And God was the truest king of Israel. And he was running the show. He was king then, and he would still be king on the other side of their restoration. He was also in their midst, so he, he dwelt among them just as he had promised to do. And we know this is going to be true for us too, right? What do we hear in Revelation? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And thus... We sing and exult with all our heart. We rejoice for the Lord resides with us. Rejoice for the Lord resides or dwells with us. I think who's really running the show today? 
Because, I don't know if you've ever seen a news bulletin on this, but the Lord's never been voted out or impeached, conquered, dethroned. He's never stepped down or resigned or retired. The true king lives forever. And this truth should, help, should stabilize us when our own nations or rulers are either evil or unstable or in distress. Because if the Lord was in their midst, when he dwelt in a, in a physical temple in their city, how much more is he in our midst when we are the temple of the living God? Have we lost our wonder over that? Nothing in the world can separate us from Jesus' love and presence as our King. He promised, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The Lord is the God who was there, and he is the God who is here, and he is the God who will be there even after all of our nations crumble to dust. There's a, a similar passage to this from the other Zed prophet, Zechariah, that goes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, when did that happen? At Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? When he was hailed as the son of David, the, the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. Interestingly, in John's account of that event, he adds some words at the beginning of the quote from Zechariah, which I just read, which are not in Zechariah. So he quotes from somewhere else, and he says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Does that sound familiar? Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Your King is here. So Zephaniah sees the Lord, Yahweh, as, as king in the midst of Israel, even after their exile, but he doesn't mention anything about a son of David who's going to sit on the throne. It's Jesus who shows us how this is all going to fit together. The Lord resides with us. So rejoice. Verse 17 repeats this idea, emphasizing, he says, the Lord your God is in your midst. This time, though, God's not described as king, but a mighty warrior. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. So he's mighty and strong. He's a champion soldier, the, the ultimate hero among them. Now, just imagine if we had a a real-life Spider-Man or Batman or Superman living among us. Right? How much safer would you feel on the streets or the neighborhoods of our city? 
How comforting would it be if you could just send them a bat signal if you needed help? Or just call out for Superman and know that his super ears are going to hear you and he can come flying to your aid. God being a mighty one who will save is like a superhero on steroids. And it's real. Like he lives among us in our midst. He's not far away. He's not on some imaginary movie screens. He knows you personally. He hears you intimately. And he will save. Is he your savior today? Are you saved from sin, from judgment, from death? Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve to die. But he's not just a weak Savior who merely died. He rose from the dead, mighty to save. So have you called on his name for salvation, seeking him as your Savior? If so, praise the Lord. If not, you can today, because he's still near right now. So call upon him while he's near. If you need help or have questions, we'd love to help you today, or talk to the, the friend who brought you. As we go on, though, verse 17 is the most well-known verse in Zephaniah. It's been called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. But as we hear everything about God dwelling with us and saving us, we wonder, why? I mean, if you followed along in Zephaniah, these people were pretty terrible. (laughs) Why would God save such awful sinners like them? Or like us? The answer is love. God's gracious, marvelous, incomprehensible, everlasting love. Don't believe me? Get a load of these words. (laughs) They're astonishing. The Lord your God, this is verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will Rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So notice, God's people are not the only ones meant to sing. We actually join an ongoing song. There's already a singer. We are meant to join his song, which is a love song. But God's love is no sentimental, superficial fluff. It's a strong love from a mighty Savior. He is our strength and our song because he is strong and he sings over us. I think this verse shows us that that God incredibly delights in his people. 
Or put it this way, rejoice, for the Lord rejoices over us. Rejoice. He stunningly delights in us. So rejoice, for the Lord rejoices over us. Picture a parent holding their newborn baby, beaming, cooing, or singing softly, or maybe standing there super proud of their kid as they graduate high school or university. That's the idea of rejoicing over us with gladness. But do you get what this means? It means that God is not embarrassed by you. He's not sorry that he made you. God is not disgusted by us. God is not ashamed to call you his child. He does not save you begrudgingly. Like if you come to him or he, you came to him, he's thrilled about it. Like he's the one that threw the party in heaven. The angels didn't do that. God threw the party. And he's, he's cheering you on even now. That's how much he loves you. He delights in us. He rejoices over us. He exalts over us with singing and loud Singing at that, it says. He's passionate, animated, exuberant, like he's not holding back. By the way, what do you think God's singing voice sounds like? Won't that be something to hear one day? But does this not mess with our our modest, restrained notions of God's affections for us. You might think, I don't feel like God could be nearly this happy or pleased with me. I'm not even this happy with me. And I'm not very humble either. <laughs> like We know the evil in our hearts. And yet, God knows our hearts even better than we do. And these are his promises, that he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So, so let these words blow up our weaker, lesser ideas about God. Like put a stick of dynamite in them. God is so much higher and greater than we can imagine, and that includes his love for us. That God, that the Lord shows delight in his creation is amazing enough. That he should be ecstatic over sinful people is incomprehensible. And he says he is. I wonder how much would change in our lives if we truly believed that God rejoices over us, delights in us. How much joy and peace and security would this give us on a daily basis? Would we be 
nearly as anxious as we are about what's going on in our world? How much quicker would we be to run to God for forgiveness or to pray to him for help? Would we actually believe the promise that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? How much would we passionately love him in return? Like this can be totally reorienting. Ian Dugan says, if we think that God forgives us only because he must, then we will be slow to come to him with our joys and our sorrows, our successes and our sins. Deep down, we will be afraid that he isn't really interested in us or delighted by us. We imagine that God will be slow to forgive our acts of rebellion against him because our darkest failures underscore our deep fear that God is constantly disappointed in us. Zephaniah paints a very different portrait of God. He doesn't delight in us because we are resourceful, strong, and holy. On the contrary, throughout our earthly lives, we continue to be weak and wandering, feeble and failing. God delights in his children because they are his, purchased through his redeeming love and cleansed through the sacrificial blood of his son. In other words, he, he loves us because he loves us. Now notice here, in the, in the middle of the three things Zephaniah says God will do, says that he will quiet you by his love. He'll quiet you by his love. This means one of two things, and either one of them is spectacular. Okay, this could mean, like the ESV translates it here, that God will quiet us with his love. So this would be saying that he's calming our fears and comforting us in our tears. Like, it's okay. I love you. Alternatively, some translations, and actually most scholars think that this is saying that God will be quiet over us in his love. That God's quiet over, which, which means, think about it, that his love stretches to both extremes. Quiet contemplation to loud jubilation. You might picture a, a bride and groom on their wedding day, just gazing at each other. They don't need to say a word. They're just delighted in their mutual love. So this would be like God sinking into a contented smile with a happy sigh. And then he bursts into song. And I think that we can see shadows of God's quiet love in the way Christ went silently to the cross. And we can see shadows of his jubilant love in, in the Father's delight at Jesus' baptism or transfiguration. Like, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And since Christians are united to Christ now, we are now recipients of the same delighted love of the Father. 
And if you think this sounds excessive, it's unrealistic for God to, to love to these extents. Think of it this way. Fallen, limited people can experience love like this in snippets. And if we can do that, like if there are moments when we can revel in deep peace and high ecstasy in love, then certainly a perfect, unlimited God could reach further and greater depths and heights. Truly, may we be rooted and grounded in love and have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let me ask you, do you know that God loves you? Do you really know that God really really, really loves you. Because, I'll tell you this, the depth of our faith and the way we live it out completely depends on knowing this. Dane Ortland puts it this way. says, your growth in Christ will go no further than your settledness way down deep in your heart that God loves you. His affection for his own never wanes, never sours, never cools. Half-hearted is not who he is. That thing about you that makes you wince most only strengthens his delight in embracing you. At your point of deepest shame and regret, that's where Christ loves you the most. Divine love is not calculating and cautious like ours. The God of the Bible is unrestrained. If we are united to Jesus Christ, our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Though our sins will make us more miserable, they cause his love to surge forward all the more. This love is the power that bursts the created order into existence, and most supremely you, his the pinnacle of creation. He created you in order to love you. He knit you together with his hands so that he could pull you into his heart. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels song. Now, when we hear majestic words like these, it can actually lead some to doubt his love because they don't feel like they're experiencing this kind of love here and now. They feel the sorrow or suffering of this world. Maybe this is you. You sense injustice or unfairness all around, and you think, God must have just been filling the air with empty words here, because I don't see it. But here's the thing. God never once 
promises to make our life grand now. That's not the promise. Sometimes God even suggests that following him will make things harder for us. And and I can admit that if God were to leave sin and suffering and injustice unaddressed forever, then yes, it would mean he's either impotent or absent or unloving or unjust. But if he promises to right all the wrongs one day and he actually does this, then our objections about the problem of evil can evaporate. The darkness actually will make his light shine that much more brilliantly in the end. And at the tail end of Zephaniah, what we find are promises just like this, that he's going to right the wrongs. In one final declaration, God jam-packs at least eight promises into three verses. And they tell us, again, to rejoice. For the Lord promises to reverse our fortunes. We should rejoice, for the Lord promises to reverse our fortunes. Look, verse 18 says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. That's most likely saying God will bring his people back from exile who had been in mourning there because they couldn't celebrate their religious festivals or feasts. It'd be like us being denied the chance to ever celebrate Christmas or Easter again by people who hate us. God says he'll, he'll take away the disgrace they feel as reproached foreigners in a faraway land. And then he promises again to get rid of his people's enemies once and for all. Verse 19, Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. So those people who made life miserable for them, they'd be gone. And while the the proud and mighty oppressors go down, he'll lift up the humble and lowly. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. So it's not the the impressive ones from a human perspective that are going to flourish. It's the disabled and the outcasts, the weak and helpless, the, the down and out, the humble who are desperate enough to seek after the Lord, will receive his love. And I think Jesus' earthly ministry was a great demonstration of this, of his rescuing, healing, saving power. Those whom the world sees as of of little value are the very ones God's going to glorify. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And he rewords that in verse 20. says, at that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. So he'll bring them back home again. He'll give them a good name again. He says he'll actually make them renowned and praised. The message puts it in rhyme. says, in the very countries they were hated, they will be venerated. Didn't know Eugene Peterson rapped, but 
But this would have been unthinkable for people living in exile. So imagine how encouraging these words, this promise must have been to them. For any who actually believed it was true. And when would this all happen? Verse 20 again, at that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. At that time refers to the theme that we've seen all along in Zephaniah, the day of the Lord, which is also sometimes called the day of judgment or judgment day. But here we see that that day is just as much a day of salvation. It's a salvation day. It's the day when all the fortunes of God's people are reversed and restored forever. Peter, in the New Testament, calls us elect exiles all around the globe. And that's because we're not home yet. We are living in a hard and sometimes hostile land. A world that increasingly wants to shame people, even like cancel people today for anything they can. So these promises should speak to us too. That one day, God will transform any shame that believers experience now into praise. One day, we won't feel weak or like outcasts anymore. We'll be restored and renewed to a glory that we can't even fathom. And on that day, we'll be gathered together and brought in. We'll be home. Really, for the first time ever. From scattered and mourning to gathered and vindicated. From oppressed to liberated, from crippled to healed and restored, from outcast to belonging, from shame to praise, from broken and destitute to beautifully restored fortunes. See all the reversals here? (laughs) This was God's promise to his humble people then for when they'd return from exile. And I believe that these promises are even greater and weightier for us in Christ because he's the only one who can completely fulfill them. And we have begun to experience these reversals of fortune even now in him. So the question that remains is, will we believe God will do what he says he will do? I think if we can see the ways that he's already begun addressing sin and evil through Jesus, that can help us trust him more that he'll finish the job one day. Today we may feel spiritually weak, feel ashamed for falling short yet again this week. We may think that God will eventually give up on us, like we give up on us, that he'll discard us onto a scrap heap, kicking us out of his community. Zephaniah tells us the exact opposite is the truth. That though we do fall short, that God is delighted 
to save us. That though we deserve his judgment, he makes a way for judgment to be taken away. That instead of the scrap heap, we will be given a whole heap of blessings. So I pray that your heart chooses to seek him now. And to seek him for the rest of your life. Today can be a salvation day for you. Along with a much greater one on the way. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't, don't wait until the great day of the Lord to join in his great song of victory. He's singing now. Let's, let's anticipate his day, but let's go beyond that and actually celebrate it. Now. Zephaniah tells us that the ruin and wreckage of this present world will be reversed and restored. Our days are dark, but there is a much, much brighter tomorrow in store. Zephaniah also says that our own brokenness and sin are not the end of the story. God's love is. The, the very real shame and injustices that we experience will not have the final word. The Lord has the final word. He even is literally the last word. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. And these all make for excellent reasons to celebrate. So sing. Rejoice. Shout. Exult. Because our singing Savior and King in our midst is doing no less. Father, we Come before you today. Please open our eyes to see your love for us. Let us see your love demonstrated in Christ, won for us forever in his blood, and secure for us in heaven, even now. So we praise you. Lift our hearts today from the the muck and the mire of this world to see your greatness and your glory and help us to exult in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.